It's the 2nd of March in the year of our salvation, 2010. This is Tuesday in the second week of Lent. And you're back with Father John Zulsdorf on another podcast. Welcome back to another podcast with Father John Zolzdorf, Father Z, Father Zed, as I'm called across the pond. We welcome as our guest today, Most Reverend Charles J. Chapu, Archbishop of Denver. His Excellency is not here with us in person, but rather through the medium of a text of a speech he gave on the 1st of March at Houston Baptist University in Texas. Archbishop Chaput, of course, has been a very strong voice in the United States Church for some years, especially in the way he stood up in public and spoke very clearly about the foundational right of human beings to be born before consideration of all other important social issues. Uh, His Excellency is really standing up and being counted. He's giving a good example to Catholics about how to act and think and talk and be consistent with their Catholic identity in the public square. Now, the speech that he gave in Houston on the 1st of March in 2010 is very important, and for the following reasons. First of all, there is a war going on on traditional religious expression. It's everywhere in the public square, in practically every sphere of life. Secularists are trying to drive Christians in general and Catholics in particular from the public square. And we must understand what historical influences have accelerated and exacerbated that war on Christian influence in the public square. Uh, Secondly, Uh, The Catholic bishops of the United States, and please God, hopefully the rest of the world, but at least in the United States, are rousing themselves out of the enervated torpor they have collectively been mired in for decades. And Archbishop Chaput's talk at a Protestant school in the heart of the Southern Bible Belt is therefore of great importance. He chose an interesting venue to bring all this out. Uh, Third, uh, Archbishop Chaput has called out pro-abortion Catholic politicians who have for a long time uh, been separating what they claim is their devout Catholic belief, which they hold only in private it seems, uh, from who they are and what they do in their public actions. Archbishop Chaput explains in very clear and sharp language in his speech how their claims are dead wrong. Another reason is that uh, Archbishop Chaput, in his talk, uh, rereads for us the myth that has surrounded a pivotal Catholic figure in the American social landscape, and I mean uh, the late President John F. Kennedy. In 1960, uh, in the throes of the presidential election, uh, JFK sought to allay the primordial fears of many Protestants uh, that were he elected. As a Catholic, he would be the puppet of the Vatican. And in 
trying to set these, you know, assuage these fears, uh, Kennedy effectively sold out his Catholic identity. And in a longer lasting consequence, he provided a model for Catholic uh, politicians and other figures down to our own time to do the same. That is to segregate their faith into the sphere of the private. And this did long lasting damage to not just uh, how Christians uh, function or other believers uh, function in the public square, but it did damage to the social fabric of the whole West, I think. Another reason why we should pay attention to the speech is because I think the mainstream media is going to largely ignore what happened, and they're going to do so for reasons that you can guess on your own. That's one of the reasons why I'm making this podcast and why I'm recording it, uh, so that more people can hear it. And as you listen to it, tune your ears uh, in to uh, find the following points. Uh, Archbishop Shepu makes a very good distinction about what true ecumenism is. You know, if it's just a matter of manners, well, then it's not really good ecumenism at all. We have to have you know real clarity when we talk to each other. Uh, he also talks about the false understanding of a notion of in for the United States separation of church in and state. We hear this all the time, separation of church and state as the basis for driving any kind of religious expression out of the public square and relegating it, segregating it to the, strictly to the, the private sphere. Uh, also, um, Archbishop Chapu makes use of a theologian uh, dear to my heart, uh, who I have been reading and working on for years, St. Augustine of Hippo who has been a frequent guest in these podcasts, as a matter of fact, um, Archbishop Chaput uses Augustine's uh, political thought as a starting point for a Christian approach to the role of believers in the public square, as well as the limitations of what we can realistically accomplish uh, while we are still in this veil of tears, while we're still here on, on earth. Um, he speaks of the, the duties of Christians to participate precisely as Christians in the public square. And he takes uh, some of his uh, ideas from starting points in Augustine. And uh, so that is very worthy of belief. Listen, tune your ears very carefully to those points. Now, without further ado, let's hear my reading of the text of Archbishop Chaput's speech uh, given at Houston Baptist University on the 1st of March, 2010. The Vocation of Christians in American Public Life by Charles J. Chaput One of the ironies in my talk tonight is this. I am a Catholic bishop speaking at a Baptist university in America's Protestant heartland. But I have been welcomed with more warmth and friendship than I might find at a number of Catholic venues. This is a fact worth discussing. I'll come back to it at the end of my comments. I need to offer a few caveats before I turn to the substance of our discussion. The first caveat is this. My thoughts tonight are purely my own. I don't speak for the Holy See, or the American Catholic bishops, or the Houston Catholic community. 
In the Catholic tradition, the local bishop is the chief preacher and teacher of the faith, and the shepherd of the local church. Here in Houston, you have an outstanding bishop, a man of great Christian faith and intellect, in Cardinal Daniel DiNardo. In all things Catholic tonight, I am glad to defer to his leadership. Here is my second caveat. I am here as a Catholic Christian and an American citizen, in that order. Both of these identities are important. They don't need to conflict. They are not, however, the same thing, and they do not have the same weight. I love my country. I revere the genius of its founding documents and its public institutions. But no nation, not even the one I love, has a right to my allegiance or my silence in matters that belong to God or that undermine the dignity of the human persons he created. My third caveat is this. Catholics and Protestants have different memories of American history. The historian Paul Johnson once wrote that America was born Protestant. That's clearly true. Whatever America is today, or maybe come tomorrow, its origin was deeply shaped by a Protestant Christian spirit, and the fruit of that spirit has been, on the balance, a great blessing for humanity. But it's also true that, while Catholics have always thrived in the United States, they lived through two centuries of discrimination, religious bigotry, and occasional violence. Protestants, of course, will remember things quite differently. They will remember Catholic persecution of dissenters in Europe, the entanglements of the Roman Church and state power, and papal suspicion of democracy and religious liberty. We cannot erase those memories, and we cannot, nor should we try, to paper over the issues that still divide us as believers in terms of doctrine, authority, and our understandings of the Church. Ecumenism, based on good manners instead of truth, is empty. It's also a form of lying. If we share a love of Jesus Christ and a familial bond in baptism and God's word, then on a fundamental level we are brothers and sisters. Members of a family owe each other more than surface courtesies. We owe each other the kind of fraternal respect that speaks the truth in love. We also urgently owe each other solidarity and support in dealing with a culture that increasingly derides religious faith in general, and the Christian faith in particular. And that brings me to the heart of what I want to share with you. Our theme tonight is the vocation of Christians in American public life. That's a pretty broad canvas, broad enough that I wrote a book about it. Tonight, I want to focus in a special way on the role of Christians in our country's civic and political life. The key to our discussion will be that word vocation. It comes from the Latin word vocare, which means to call. Christians believe that God calls each of us individually and all of us as a believing community to know, love, and serve Him in our daily lives. But there's more. He also asks us to make disciples of all nations. That means we have a duty to preach Jesus Christ. We have a mandate to share his gospel of truth, mercy, justice, and love. These are mission words, action words. They're not optional. 
and they have practical consequences for the way we think, speak, make choices, and live our lives, not just at home, but in the public square. Real Christian faith is always personal, but it's never private. And we need to think about that simple fact in light of an anniversary. Fifty years ago this fall, in September 1960, Senator John F. Kennedy, the Democratic candidate for president, spoke to the Greater Houston Ministerial Association. He had one purpose— he needed to convince 300 uneasy Protestant ministers and the country at large that a Catholic like himself could serve loyally as our nation's chief executive. Kennedy convinced the country, if not the ministers, and went on to be elected. And his speech left a lasting mark on American politics. It was sincere, compelling, articulate, and wrong not wrong about the patriotism of Catholics, but wrong about American history, and very wrong about the role of religious faith in our nation's life. And he wasn't merely wrong. His Houston remarks profoundly undermined the place not just of Catholics, but of all religious believers in America's public life and political conversation. Today, half a century later, we're paying for the damage. Now, those are strong statements. So I'll try to explain them by doing three things. First, I want to look at the problems in what Kennedy actually said. Second, I want to reflect on what a proper Christian approach to politics and public service might look like. And last, I want to examine where Kennedy's speech has led us, in other words, the realities we face today, and what Christians need to do about those realities. John Kennedy was a great speaker. Ted Sorensen, who helped craft the Houston speech, was a gifted writer. As a result, it's easy to speed-read Kennedy's Houston remarks as a passionate appeal for tolerance. But the text has at least two big flaws. The first is political and historical. The second is religious. Early in his remarks, Kennedy said, I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute. Given the distrust historically shown to Catholics in this country, his words were shrewdly chosen. The trouble is, the Constitution doesn't say that. The founders and framers didn't believe that. And the history of the United States contradicts that. Unlike revolutionary leaders in Europe, the American founders looked quite favorably on religion. Many were believers themselves. In fact, one of the main reasons for writing the First Amendment's Establishment Clause, the clause that bars any federally endorsed church, was that several of the Constitution's framers wanted to protect the publicly funded Protestant churches they already had in their own states. John Adams actually preferred a mild and equitable establishment of religion, and helped draft that into the 1780 Massachusetts Constitution. America's founders encouraged mutual support between religion and government. Their reasons were practical. In their view, a republic like the United States needs a virtuous people to survive. Religious faith, 
rightly lived, forms virtuous people. Thus, the modern, drastic sense of the separation of church and state had little force in American consciousness until Justice Hugo Black excavated it from a private letter President Thomas Jefferson wrote in 1802 to the Danbury Baptist Association. Justice Black then used Jefferson's phrase in the Supreme Court's Everson v. Board of Education decision in 1947. The date of that court decision is important because America's Catholic bishops wrote a wonderful pastoral letter one year later in 1948 called The Christian in Action. It's worth reading. In that letter, the bishops did two things. They strongly endorsed American democracy and religious freedom. They also strongly challenged Justice Black's logic in Everson. The bishops wrote that it would be an utter distortion of American history and law to force the nation's public institutions into an indifference to religion and the exclusion of cooperation between religion and government. They rejected Justice Black's harsh new sense of the separation of church and state as a shibboleth of doctrinaire secularism. And the bishops argued their case from the facts of American history. The value of remembering that pastoral statement tonight is this. Kennedy referenced the 1948 bishop's letter in his Houston comments. He wanted to prove the deep Catholic support for American democracy, and rightly so. But he neglected to mention that the same bishops in the same letter repudiated the new and radical kind of separation doctrine he was preaching. The Houston remarks also created a religious problem. To his credit, Kennedy said that if his duties as president should ever require me to violate my conscience or violate the national interest, I would resign the office. He also warned that he would not disavow my views or my church in order to win this election. But in its effect, the Houston speech did exactly that. It began the project of walling religion away from the process of governance in a new and aggressive way. It also divided a person's private beliefs from his or her public duties, and it set the national interest over and against outside religious pressures or dictates. For his audience of Protestant ministers, Kennedy's stress on personal conscience may have sounded familiar and reassuring, but what Kennedy actually did, according to Jesuit scholar Mark Massa, was something quite alien and new. He secularized the American presidency in order to win it. In other words, precisely because Kennedy was not an adherent of that mainstream Protestant religiosity that had created and buttressed the plausibility structures of American political culture, at least since Lincoln, he had to privatize presidential religious belief, including, and especially his own, in order to win that office. In Massa's view, the kind of secularity pushed by the Houston speech 
represented a near-total privatization of religious belief, so much a privatization that religious observers from both sides of the Catholic-Protestant fence commented on its remarkable atheistic implications for public life and discourse. And the irony, again as told by Massa, is that some of the same people who worried publicly about Kennedy's Catholic faith got a result very different from the one they expected. In effect, the raising of the Catholic issue itself went a considerable way toward secularizing the American public square by privatizing personal belief. The very effort to safeguard the essentially Protestant religious aura of the presidency contributed in significant ways to its secularization. Fifty years after Kennedy's Houston speech, we have more Catholics in national public office than ever before. But I wonder if we've ever had fewer of them who can coherently explain how their faith informs their work or who even feel obligated to try. The life of our country is no more Catholic or Christian than it was 100 years ago. In fact, it's arguably less so. And at least one of the reasons for it is this. Too many Catholics confuse their personal opinions with a real Christian conscience. Too many live their faith as if it were a private idiosyncrasy, the kind that they'll never allow to become a public nuisance. And too many just don't really believe. Maybe it's different in Protestant circles, but I hope you'll forgive me if I say I doubt it. John Kennedy didn't create the trends in American life that I've described, but at least for Catholics, his Houston speech clearly fed them. Which brings me to the second point of my talk. What would a proper Christian approach to politics look like? John Courtney Murray, the Jesuit scholar who spoke so forcefully about the dignity of American democracy and religious freedom, once wrote, the Holy Spirit does not descend into the city of man in the form of a dove. He comes only in the endlessly energetic spirit of justice and love that dwells in the man of the city, the layman. Here's what that means. Christianity is not mainly or even significantly about politics. It's about living and sharing the love of God. And Christian political engagement, when it happens, is never mainly the task of the clergy. That work belongs to lay believers who live most intensely in the world. Christian faith is not a set of ethics or doctrines. It's not a group of theories about social and economic justice. All these things have their place. All of them can be important. But a Christian life begins in a relationship with Jesus Christ and it bears fruit in the justice, mercy, and love we show to others because of that relationship. Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That's the test of our faith 
and without a passion for Jesus Christ in our hearts that reshapes our lives, Christianity is just a word game and a legend. Relationships have consequences. A married man will commit himself to certain actions and behaviors, no matter what the cost, out of the love he bears for his wife. Our relationship with God is the same. We need to live and prove our love by our actions, not just in our personal and family lives, but also in the public square. Therefore, Christians individually and the church as a believing community engage the political order as an obligation of the word of God. Human law teaches and forms as well as regulates. And human politics is the exercise of power, which means both have moral implications that the Christian cannot ignore and still remain faithful to his vocation as a light to the world. Robert Dodaro, the Augustinian priest and scholar, wrote a wonderful book a few years ago called Christ and the Just Society in the Thought of Augustine. In his book and elsewhere, Dodaro makes four key points about Augustine's view of Christianity and politics. First, Augustine never really offers a political theory, and there's a reason. He doesn't believe human beings can know or create perfect justice in this world. Our judgment is always flawed by our sinfulness. Therefore, the right starting point for any Christian politics is humility, modesty, and a very sober realism. Second, no political order, no matter how seemingly good, can ever constitute a just society. Errors in moral judgment can't be avoided. These errors also grow exponentially in their complexity as they move from lower to higher levels of society and governance. Therefore, the Christian needs to be loyal to her nation and obedient to its legitimate rulers. But he also needs to cultivate a critical vigilance about both. Third, despite these concerns, Christians still have a duty to take part in public life according to their God-given abilities, even when their faith brings them into conflict with public authority. We can't simply ignore or withdraw from civic affairs. The reason is simple. The classic civic virtues named by Cicero, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance, can be renewed and elevated to the benefit of all citizens by the Christian virtues of faith, hope, and charity. Therefore, political engagement is a worthy Christian task, and public office is an honorable Christian vocation. Fourth, in governing as best they can, while conforming their lives and their judgment to the content of the gospel, Christian leaders in public life can accomplish real good, and they can make a difference. Their success will always be limited and mixed. It will never be ideal. But with the help of God, they can improve the moral quality of society, which makes the effort invaluable. What Augustine believes about Christian leaders, we can reasonably extend to the vocation of all Christian citizens. The skills of the Christian citizen are finally very simple. A zeal for Jesus Christ and his church, a conscience formed in humility and rooted in scripture, and the believing community, 
the prudence to see which issues in public life are vital and foundational to human dignity, and which ones are not, and the courage to work for what's right. We don't cultivate these skills alone. We develop them together as Christians, in prayer, on our knees, in the presence of Jesus Christ, and also in discussions like tonight. Now, before ending, I want to turn briefly to the third point I mentioned earlier in my talk, the realities we face today and what Christians need to do about them. As I was preparing these comments for tonight, I listed all the urgent issues that demand our attention as believers. Abortion, immigration, our obligations to the poor, the elderly, and the disabled, questions of war and peace, our national confusion about sexual identity and human nature, and the attacks on marriage and family life that flow from this confusion, the growing disconnection of our science and technology from real moral reflection, the erosion of freedom of conscience in our national health care debates, the content and quality of the schools that form our children. The list is long. I believe abortion is the foundational human rights issue of our lifetime. We need to do everything we can to support women in their pregnancies and to end the legal killing of unborn children. We may want to remember that the Romans had a visceral hatred for Carthage, not because Carthage was a commercial rival or because its people had a different language and customs. The Romans hated Carthage above all, because its people sacrificed their infants to Baal. For the Romans, who themselves were a hard people, that was a unique kind of wickedness and barbarism. As a nation, we might profitably ask ourselves whom and what we've really been worshipping in our 40 million legal abortions since 1973. All of these issues that I have listed above divide our country and our churches in a way Augustine would have found quite understandable. The city of God and the city of man overlap in this world. Only God knows who finally belongs to which. But in the meantime, in seeking to live the gospel we claim to believe, we find friends and brothers in unforeseen places, unlikely places. And when that happens, even a foreign place can seem like one's home. The vocation of Christians in public life does not have a Baptist or Catholic or Greek Orthodox or any other brand-specific label. John 14.6 I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, which is so key to the identity of Houston Baptist University, burns just as hot in this heart and the heart of every Catholic who truly understands his faith. Our job is to love God, preach Jesus Christ, serve and defend God's people, and sanctify the world as his agents. To do that work, we need to be one. Not one in pious words or good intentions, but really one, perfectly one, in mind and heart and action as Christ intended. This is what Jesus meant when he said, I do not pray for these only, but also those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be in us, 
so that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. We live in a country that was once, despite its sins and flaws, deeply shaped by Christian faith. It can be so again. But we will do that together, or we won't do it at all. We need to remember the words of St. Hilary from so long ago, Unum sunt, qui invicem sunt. They are one who are holy for each other. May God grant us the grace to love each other, support each other, and live holy for each other in Jesus Christ, so that we might work together in renewing the nation that has served human freedom so well. That was His Excellency Most Reverend Charles J. Chaput, Archbishop of Denver, in his speech to Houston Baptist University on the 1st of March, 2010. Now, in the 1960s and 70s, there were some key events which shaped the way Catholic politicians, especially Democrats and those whom we now identify as liberals, approached their identity, their Catholic identity in the public square. Uh, of course, we had this key speech of John F. Kennedy in Houston, just before the presidential election that year. And another event was a meeting that took place at the Kennedy compound in Hyannisport in uh, 1964. The Kennedys and the Shrivers, another prominent American Catholic political family, uh, met there with some Catholic priest theologians, uh, mainly Jesuits, who helped them, well, slither around within Catholic social teaching and issues of conscience and so forth, uh, the role of religious liberty and all these various things to find a way to effectively find a way to support abortion. Among those at that important meeting were the Jesuit uh, Robert Drynan, who also served in the House of Representatives, but he had to quit with the change of canon law in 1983. And also uh, Giles Milhaven and Richard McCormick and Charles Curran and Joseph Fuchs. Uh, basically, they helped uh, form uh, an argument around Catholic teachings, so that they as Catholics could pursue a very different agenda than what could be justified according to uh, a solid and clear uh, and faithful Catholic identity. Uh, 
Uh, you have to remember also the 1967 Land O'Lakes Agreement, uh, which effectively said that Catholic schools of higher education uh, really could be, you know, very separate from uh, the the uh, the oversight of the church and its magisterium and its uh, duly uh, appointed and mandated shepherds. You will also remember a speech at Notre Dame given by Mario Cuomo in 1984 in which he said that he was personally opposed to abortion. You know, that's a a phrase that we've heard so much of for so long. He's personally opposed to abortion as a Catholic, but that personal belief isn't wasn't going to interfere with you know his public actions, his public stands. Uh, he also said that we had to accommodate ourselves to what was you know, really feasible, what really could be done. And uh, there was also a lot of damage done in those years um, to our Catholic identity, uh, especially in the political sphere, in the public square, by influence of uh, Catholics such as the theologian Daniel McGuire, and uh, also, who can forget, the late Cardinal Bernardine um, talking about the seamless garment, basically giving a way to um, diminish the fundamental issue of the right to be born over and against a larger fabric, shall we say, of other social issues, which could permit you to, shall we say, not turn a blind eye, but not pay much attention to this issue over here for the sake of emphasizing issues over there, all in the name of of social justice and human dignity and so forth. This would be the constant drumbeat of Catholics such as Doug Kameck during the last uh, presidential election and other prominent politicians such as Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, pro-abortion, Catholic, Democrat, and the now Vice President of the United States, uh, then Senator, pro-abortion, Catholic, Joseph Biden, and uh, any number of other Catholics, basically saying that well, yes, uh, we, we're not saying that you know abortion isn't important, but you see all these other things over here, well, that kind of outweighs that abortion issue right now. And actually, you see, we're working against abortion, you see, if we can emphasize all these other things. Uh, forgetting, of course, that there is a foundational human right, and that is to be born. And if you can't uphold that, then your foundation for upholding any other human right effectively is empty. But uh, in in February of 2006 also, there was a very interesting thing that happened. Uh, a group of 55 Catholic Democrats in the House of Representatives wrote a letter to then Archbishop of Washington, D.C., Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, uh, they stated in this thing, it's kind of a, a Magna Carta of their, or a Declaration of Independence, that's even better, a Declaration of Independence from the Church's Magisterium. Uh, they said in that letter, a kind of a statement of principles, that they may seek guidance from the Church about moral issues, but they could effectively develop their own magisterium, if you will. That's my term, not theirs. 
about social teachings, moral teachings, etc. And the astonishing thing is that they had the temerity to instrumentalize John Paul II's Christi Fidelis Laici, his document about you know the, the faithful, Christ's faithful, and what their role is, what their vocation is. They instrumentalized that document to do it. It's just amazing. And uh, they said, and here's a quote, um, quote, We seek the church's guidance and assistance, but believe also in the primacy of conscience in recognizing the church's role in providing moral leadership. We acknowledge and accept the tension that comes with being in disagreement with the church in some areas. That's a close quote. This was signed uh, not just by a few Catholic Democrats, but the majority of Catholic Democrats in the House of Representatives. Uh, They also said, uh, and I quote, The church is the people of God, called to be a moral force in the broadest sense. We believe the church, is a com- as a community, is called to be in the vanguard of creating a more just America and the world. And as such, we have a claim on the church's bearing as it does on ours. Close quote. Well, what's going on there is they're, they're saying that they as, shall we say, experts and so forth, they really ought to have a stronger voice in the shaping of Catholic social teaching than the church actually says they have. Um, Effectively, what they're arguing is that the church should follow their lead rather than they should follow the church's lead. And, you know, talk about the effects of modernism, no, right? Isn't that a perfect example? Anyway, effectively, Many Catholics, and usually Catholic Democrats, and I'm not, you know, just trying to single them out. You know, I can hear it now. Father, but Father, you're just being a shill for the Republican Party. And that's not actually what I'm doing. There are pro-abortion Republicans as well. And if they're Catholic, then they are basically susceptible to exactly the criticisms that I'm dishing out here. Uh, We should scrutinize them as well. Uh, The fact is, however, is that there's a long tradition of association between uh, Catholics and the Democratic Party rather than the Republican Party. And so very many of the Catholic Catholic politicians belong to the Democratic Party. So they're the ones who really are getting the, you know, the focus here because they're the ones who put, you know, even their names to you know, declarations of independence, shall we say. So, you know, fine, uh, let's, uh, we, let's talk about all Catholic politicians in this. But um, what really is at stake here is our Catholic identity in the public square. If you try to, if you detach yourself from the authority of the church, the authority um, of her teaching through you know, formal pronouncements of the magisterium and also through the direction of bishops. Who are you as a Catholic? Who are you? Are you really Catholic if you divorce yourself from those things? And so there are some real questions that have to be asked as a result. For example, what is the duty of Catholic politicians active in the public sphere sphere to be true to their Catholic identity over and against 
um, the the reality that we are in a country, at least in the United States, and of course, virtually every other country on earth right now, we are in a country that has people of many confessions. How do we make, how do we balance these things? I suppose uh, we could get into uh, the whole issue of, you know, Edmund Burke and, you know, what a, a elected representative is supposed to be, whether they are, you know, a delegate who have to go out and do the things, you know, according to their conscience or whether they're just a voice of their electorate or whatever. But, you know, let's not get into that right now. Another question that I think that we have to really get at here is the primacy of the right to be born in tension with all of these other social issues. Um, what is, what are actually, you know, the parameters of this question? And that's something that the bishops really need to uh, step up on and be clear on as a body. The question is, when will they do that? I think Archbishop Chaput is really giving wonderful leadership in this regard, and many other bishops are as well. Uh, the fact that we had so many bishops stand up after the uh, that debacle um, this last year at you know, Notre Dame, as some people call it, University of Notre Dame, where they uh, decided to give an honor, an honorary degree in law to the most aggressively pro-abortion politician that we have ever seen. Well, you see, we saw all sorts of scores of bishops stand up uh, and, and say, no, Catholic institution can't do that. You can't honor someone like that. It's one thing to have them come and talk. That's fine. That's not a difficulty. But to honor them in that environment is simply wrong. And so the question is, when are they going to stand up? Another thing uh, is the role of an individual bishop to clarify uh, and the teaching of the church and then correct a member of his flock when he or she strays from the teaching of the church in a very obvious public way that can create scandal among the faithful and weaken the identity Catholic identity, the faithful. What, at what point do you use the remedial measures of, for example, excommunication? Now, these things are warming up. Uh, and I think we're going to see a great deal of uh, activity in this regard in the next couple of years well, especially as we, you know, come up to the midterm elections in the United States, we're going to see all of these issues coming back to the fore. Uh, certainly we'll have all sorts of talk about health care and all that, but I think that we're going to also be seeing a greater voice of the Catholic bishops in the public square in the United States. So please pray for bishops and priests in their parishes because now is the time when they are waking up and speaking with greater clarity and there's going to be great pressure exerted on them to shut up and to retire back into the torpor 
from which they are awakening. With that, I'm going to wrap up this podcast. Please join us at the blog, WDTPRS.com. That's Whiskey Delta Tango Papa Romeo Sierra.com. If that's a little hard to remember, just think of Googling Father Z. You can also go to FatherZOnline.com. Spell it out, Father Z, F-A-T-H-E-R-Z. And uh, participate in discussions, very good discussions that we have on the blog. And feel free to use that donation button on the left sidebar. With that, I will ask you, as I usually do, to please, in your charity, pray for me as I will for you. 